Hey there, before we get started, did you know that there's a live stream now? In this live stream, you have the opportunity to speak to unstructured guests and ask your own questions. I do my best to ask as good a questions as I possibly can, but I can't think of everything, and I'm sure that you have many to provide. There have been a few already with Chase Hughes, Viva Fry, and Christina Lennon, but I have others coming up dealing with body language, influence, and even a private investigator, Sheila Waisaki, will be coming up. So be sure to check out YouTube, look up Eric Hunley, I will also link in the show notes, and check out the live stream. Now for today's show, I am really honored to have on Jessica Abel. Jessica is a legend in the podcasting world because she co-wrote the book Radio, an Illustrated Guide with Ira Glass of This American Life. That was an early book used by many podcasters to help get them off the ground and figure out how to record episodes and things of that sort. It went over the entire NPR process. She went on to follow it up with Out on the Wire in 2015, which is a much thicker tome. Now, what is unique about these books is they are both, in fact, comics, or as she calls them, graphic documentaries. We haven't figured out the term for a nonfiction graphic piece because graphic novel would imply it's fiction. We cover that in this episode. I really think you will enjoy this, and she is a fantastic guest. I'll bring you Jessica Abel. My name is Eric Hunley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Hi, Jessica. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Now, I'm really excited to have you on because you not only have been around some of the most important people, I would say, in podcasting and radio, because you've kind of crossed the threshold from one medium to another, but you've also documented it. And that's Yeah, I mean, in some ways, yes, in some aspects of it, for sure. Now, how did you back into that? Well, I mean, the whole story dates back. I don't know if your listeners know the book that we're talking about here, but yeah. So I have two books that have to do with radio and podcasting. One is called Radio and Illustrated Guide, which is a 32-page comic book, like a floppy. And then that came out in 1999. And then I have a full-size graphic documentary. I don't know what you would call it. It's not a novel. So, but you know, book size thing called out on the wire, the storytelling secrets of the new masters of radio, which is the storytelling secrets of the new masters of radio. (laughs) It's a, it's a book where I interviewed about 35 or so, a few more actually who didn't make it in, but different producers who are some of the top producers in podcasting and radio about how they make the work that is so amazing. Like, how do they make the stories week after week that we keep coming back to? So Out on the Wire is probably what I'm better known for. I actually also have a podcast called Out on the Wire that I made as a Mm -hmm. kind of follow-up to the book. And the people in it in the book are people like Ira Glass and Jada Abroad and Hannah Jaffe-Walt and Stephanie Fu and Glenn Washington and, you know, a lot of people who are doing really amazing stuff. And there are all kinds of other people who are doing awesome stuff now who weren't doing much then, you know, because I did did the research for this book in 2013. So a lot has changed since then. 
But but yeah, so that's a book that's really about storytelling technique. It's really about it's about narrative audio. But it stems from the first book, which is Radio and Illustrated Guide, which I did in 1998. And I co wrote it with Ira Glass, and then drew it myself. Obviously, he didn't draw it. And that comes from I mean, the reason that happened is basically because he called me out of the blue and asked me to do it. So yeah, I was wondering about that. He was a fan of yours, I understand. Well, I would, that would be pushing it. He had clipped and saved a comic that I did in a local tabloid called The New City two years earlier, three years earlier. He just found it and was like, that's cool and put it in his files. And then as he was brainstorming fun stuff to do for pledge drive premiums, I was like, we could do a comic book. <laughs> and literally called me on the phone, looked me up in the white pages, because this is 1998 we're talking about. And I had moved to Mexico City. This is in Chicago. I had moved to Mexico City five months earlier. And I was trying to be an illustrator, professional illustrator, mm -hmm. that is, you know, have clients and so on. And so I had this idea of putting like a, you could get an automatic forwarding message on your old phone number when you move for six months. So basically, it was like five months into my six month period. I had a website, but it was not a thing people did then to like look like to Google people. You Google's 99. Anyway, so yeah. Yeah. So he, I mean, I, he could have found me through Yahoo, I guess. But <laughs> in any case, I don't know if he would have, he's a journalist, so he might have tracked me down. But the easy thing was he just got my Mexican phone number and called me in Mexico City, which was like the craziest phone call to get to answer the phone and realize it's Ira Glass before he tells you his name. Now, you were a fan of the show yourself already before he contacted you? Yeah, I mean, because I was living in Chicago, and he was on local Chicago public radio for years before he went national. And I was not, I wouldn't say I was fully aware of him when he was doing like, he did a local like culture show. I'd heard it, but it wasn't like it hadn't stuck with me, you know. But he started This American Life as a show called Your American Playhouse or something like that for a year in Chicago before it became This American Life. And then it did become This American Life and started becoming this national phenomenon in like 96, 97, if you could believe it. It's been that long. And so I was <laughs> I was aware of him and I was I would listen to radio like all the time because I was a cartoonist and there's just like vast numbers of hours where you need something happening in the room with you while you draw stuff. So it was a pretty natural thing that I would be aware of him, I guess. And yeah, I was a big fan. And we'd actually, we're trying to use, what what was it? Oh God, what is it called? We tried to use basically, they live streamed, like, or not live streamed. Like, it was like kind of early podcasting. They, they Internet radio, could, like real player back then? I real think, player. Yes, they used real player. That's what it was. <laughs> <laughs> and we actually downloaded it in Mexico. Like, we listened to it. We, it was no joke. Like, we were fans. I mean, it's such a good show. And there was very little to listen to back then. We listened to that. And, and we streamed. We used Real Player to stream the show, Harry Shearer's show. Those are the two. <laughs> and that's still on the air, too. So, yeah, when he called, it was just crazy. And so he was, I wouldn't say he was a fan, but he was you know, liked the piece he'd seen. And I, I just think basically, he, like a lot of people sort of looked at comics and thought, Oh, well, that must be simple, because it it's fun, because it's fun to read, it must be really easy. And just kind of really, 
I think, understandably underestimated how much work goes into making comics. And it was a very intense few months trying to get this thing done. (laughs) You've drawn parallels between the two, haven't you, about having to take a larger message and distilling it down to the smallest. Yeah, no, no, no. There are a lot of parallels. I mean, I think it's it is a weird thing to do to create a comic about, you know, which is a medium with pictures and no sound to do something about something with sound and no pictures. But there are a lot of parallels between the two. And the more I work on it, the more I find parallels. I mean, at a basic level, it's all storytelling. But beyond that, I was able to create like visual metaphors for stuff that happens at the audio level. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of different things. That's kind of cool, though, because since you're working at both mediums, you had your own podcast, too, with Out on a Wire. Do you find traveling back and forth to the mediums might solve creative problems? Yeah, in some ways. I mean, I think it does get you thinking in interesting sort of coming at things sideways. And more than solving creative problems, I think that it if you have some idea or some something that you want to sort of get at coming at it with from different media is a productive way to to do things does it make sense like you know sure, when yeah. when i'm looking at things like story structure if i look at it just from the comics point of view i'm going to get certain amount of stuff out of it that i'm not going to get if i'm working in prose and from either one of those, I will. there's certain things that I'm going to miss if I'm not thinking about audio. Now, I've never done video. You know, I've never mm. actually, like, created. Not, not yet. <laughs> edited video. Well, exactly. It could happen. But, you know, I think that each time I learn more about how stories work, you know, from all these different things. Also, you know, the audio that I was writing about is, you know, 90%, 95, 96% of it is nonfiction. You know, it's, it's reported. Right. And so, and then I'm writing nonfiction, but also fiction. That's interesting is how it's constructed. And I was thinking about in the creativity, I've had some novelists on like Brian Freeman and they read their books out loud mm-hmm. while they're writing them. And that actually helps them not only with the dialogue, but sometimes because they're reading it out loud, they all of a sudden realize that they put themselves in a corner and they didn't quite, you know, they didn't see it before. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. didn't know if that was something that might have happened. Like, do you read your dialogue out loud in the panels and things like that? I sometimes do. I certainly, I act it out a lot because that's how you figure out what people are going to do with their bodies when they're saying these things, which you need to know when you're drawing comics. But then I think beyond that, one of the things I learned from the process of working on Out on the Wire, one of the key pieces to the process of the shows that I was dealing with is what they call the edit. And this is not editing like line editing or whatever. This is, you play the thing out loud in a group of other producers, and then you get like very severely critiqued live in that moment. And and then you make changes and then you do it again. You know, so there's these, this live edit thing that happens. And, and there's also a lot of live... Yeah, it is collaborative. Exactly. It's like all these different people talking together and trying to solve problems with the thing and that the group mission is to make it better. So that's something I learned from a lot. But then there's another piece of that, which is like, at various places through the process, there's a lot of discussion, like 
I'm working on this. This is what I'm thinking. Here's who I think is important. Here's what I think, you know, this is the direction I'm going. And as you verbalize these things, some things click, some things don't. You understand stuff about what you, what's in your head that you wouldn't, weren't able to crystallize without verbalizing it. So there's something about speaking it out loud that's very powerful. And I had always kind of done that a little bit, especially with Matt, with my my husband, Matt Madden, who's also a cartoonist. Mm-hmm. And I would sort of talk him through my story ideas and things. And he often was initially early in our relationship was like, I don't know, this doesn't feel right to me because am I helping you too much somehow? Like, or is I don't, you know, I don't feel comfortable sort of like delving into these details with you. Because it was somehow like in his own creative process, he didn't feel comfortable with that. And so he would reflect that to me, but I really needed that I needed to talk about it. And I was always looking for somebody I could talk about this stuff with. And eventually he and I worked out really good systems for that where he can, I'm like, okay, I need an hour, sit down. <laughs> I'm just going to tell you this thing. And and he reflects back what I'm saying to him and occasionally will help me course correct, but mostly it's me okay. doing the work. Some of it where he'll say, I don't get it. And yes. You have to work yourself through while you're explaining to him, you start to figure it out too. Yeah, exactly. Or he'll, you know, he'll look confused or there'll be something where it's like, yeah, that's not really, I don't think that's going anywhere. I'll say, well, I really am working between this direction and this direction. I'm trying to figure out how to put this. Can you help me brainstorm like how to put that, you know, so that it makes sense to everybody. And, and all of those things are different ways in which this can play out. I had the same kind of relationship with my producer on the podcast, Ben Frisch, where we would just sit down and talk through what the episode was supposed to be and what were we trying trying to say and what were the key points and get it all kind of laid out verbally very quickly. And then the writing was very easy. So there's something about that brain mouth (laughs) connection that (laughs) I find really, really helps. And it's one of the things I teach people now when I teach storytelling or people who are feeling stuck or whatever is like what I, it's, I call it a focus session, like sit down with somebody who's a good listener and basically wants you to succeed, you know, don't, don't pick somebody who's going to be a jerk about all this stuff. And talk your way through whatever you're stuck on. And it works a lot. I mean, it, it, it doesn't fix everything, but it helps a lot. I'm sure now you use, you know, terms that you're teaching with the focus sentence, the XY story formula. Can we go into some of that? Like, how that plays out for you, like starting with a focus sentence, maybe? Sure. So focus session is what I was just saying. And that's the whole thing, sitting down and talking through something. But the focus sentence is actually from, I learned it from Rob Rosenthal at the Transom Story Workshop. And he'd actually gotten it from Todd Maffin, who's another producer. And it's basically a framework that is very short and surprisingly useful in helping clarify what a story is about. And in particular, in this case, a story that is character-centered, where there's a protagonist of some kind. It doesn't have to be fiction, mm-hmm. but like, you know, something where there's a protagonist. So the focus sentence goes like this. Somebody is doing something because, but. And so all of those pauses are spaces to fill in. Mm-hmm. And they all have very functional roles in defining sort of a mini narrative arc, essentially. And uh, it's a really, it's, it's so simple, but it's, it's really, really powerful. Now, is that kind of a good baseline? Like just before you do anything, just kind of 
let's throw something down on what you're planning. Yeah, I mean, I think you can't do that necessarily if you like what you do is you figure out what's missing. Like when you start okay. do trying to do a focus sentence, you're like, oh, I don't have a character or they don't have a motivation or they don't have a problem or they don't, you know, like you figure out all that stuff from that. Uh, and I mean, it is really simplified and there's actually a lot more to a story, obviously, than that. But it'll get you, it'll clarify things that are not working in a really interesting way. And uh, once you know that, then you can sort of double down on getting into that stuff. I actually have a whole, you know, there's three main frameworks that I use for different things. So like that would be for, I mean, it's definitely, you can use it for other stuff, but basically you want to use it for something that has a character at the center, you know, protagonist at the center. The most broadly applicable framework I use is from Alex Bloomberg, who founded Gimlet. He also founded Planet Money and used to be at This American Life. Yeah, he's doing well. Yeah, he's doing just fine. The but he invented this when he was at This American Life for exactly these kinds of edit meetings and this kind of thing, which is an XY story formula is I'm doing a story about X and what's interesting about it is Y. And um, that's it. That's the whole thing. <laughs> it's incredibly revealing. It seems like that would be really useful, especially if you are doing nonfiction, you've collected material and you don't know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a filter, you know, and the great thing about the XY story formula is it applies to fiction, to nonfiction, anything. And frequently, it's tricky, too, because often you go into trying to write an XY story formula thinking you know what X is. You think you know what the story is about, but you realize you don't, actually. And it will refocus you on, like, what is your story actually about And then why should anybody care? The thing about the XY is that it focuses you also on the audience. So the interesting piece, and interesting is a problematic word. So I often say, like, you could say surprising, you could say, you know, amazing, you could say whatever adjective makes sense to you there. It is for the reader, because very often we as storytellers are pulled into stories because we're interested in something. But we may have what's called the curse of knowledge, where we know a lot about a topic. And so, of course, it's interesting. There's all this cool stuff. There's all these things. But like a person coming into this from outside doesn't care about any of that stuff, doesn't know any of that stuff. And forever to explain it. Right. And it's not why they're coming to read it. That's not why they're coming to absorb the story in whatever format it's in. You can hide the spinach inside the brownie, you know, like you want to give them a lesson. And so you make it, you code it in something delicious, but you got to figure out what that deliciousness is. Like, what's the thing that's going to bring people in? And the great thing about it is you can use it at every level. Like you can use it at the top level of like, this is the XY of like the Lord of the Rings trilogy, you know? And then this is the XY of each individual book. This is the XY of the individual chapter. This is the XY of this sentence. Definitely. Do you have an example of where you've seen it, where somebody thought a story was an X, but it actually was not, they had them backwards or they had the wrong direction? Yes, I do. Let me think for a second. I have more fun ones about the the focus sentence where they were just like completely wrong about who the protagonist was, but. <laughs> oh, no worries. <laughs> I just like the whole switch where you think the story is one thing and you come to find out that no, it's not. Yeah. I think you mentioned one one time about a father who worked with his son on repairing houses. Mm-hmm. But that's a focus sentence. 
that's where he figured that out. Yeah. It's a good story. Like, so for the focus sentence, the example is this, this great example. So I was teaching this matrix workshop, which is what I call the story frameworks workshop. So I was teaching a matrix workshop and it was at a journalism school and there were, you know, a lot of great journalism students, but also faculty there. And so this guy was in the workshop and I don't know what his job was actually, but he was faculty in something. And, you know, he was a 40 something year old guy, probably big guy, big red beard. And he started, he read his focus sentence. And then as we were talking, he realized something about it. So his focus sentence was for a memoir. And it was basically, he was the someone. So was, I think his name was James. James is building houses or fixing old houses with his dad because this is how they're going to recover from a really, you know, awful relationship when they were kids. But then his dad dies of cancer or something along those lines. You know, it was like this kind of, and he's like, I, you know, there's so much stuff in here I want to talk about because basically he's gay and his father was a terrible father when he was a child and mm. homophobic, but also just kind of abandoned the family and all this other stuff. And as an adult, his father had, he and his father had ended up kind of working side by side on a bunch of older houses to repair them, several, you know, older buildings. And through that had become, had built a relationship of a kind to the point where he could be there with his father when his father died. And the key to this was that, I mean, the, the problem he was having is that it was, it was like a Hallmark card. Like that's so cute, right? <laughs> and he didn't want it to be like a Hallmark card because, you know, there was a lot of awfulness in the whole story as well. He wanted it to be deeper than that. And when he examined it through the lens of the focus sentence, what he realized was that he was not the protagonist, that his father was the protagonist in the story, because his father was the one who had reached out to him to mm. do the first project together. Because he'd asked his father for some advice, and his father's like, oh, I'll just come over and help you with this roof. And then kept calling him and kept following up with him. So that his he was the one who was trying to fix things in his own, you know, sort of undercover silent way. And the only um, way he knew how to communicate exactly and like showing was, versus telling. Exactly. He was trying to show something to his son. And, and James had tears running down his face, you know, it was like this really amazing moment for him where he realized that his father, he realized something about his father and what his father had done to try to repair this relationship that, he'd never understood before. And maybe he succeeded. He did succeed. And that's the thing. He totally did. Yeah. So that's, I think, a, a really great story about how, how deep these things can go, even though they feel really shallow. And, you know, when you tell, you say the words, you're just like, what, really? You, seriously? And the XY story formula is not so much like a, I mean, it, it has flipped things around before. Like I was helping some people the other day work on a, I was doing a workshop at a podcasting company and they were working on an episode that was about, well, that had at its center, a man who had built, who was building a, or growing a, a rainforest in his backyard. He lived in Costa Rica. It's not that surprising, but like he was trying to create a rainforest on his own property and was obsessed with it. And that's what he did all the time. And with the XY story formula, it was like, is this about the rainforest? Is this about the man's obsession? Is this about his family and the effect on his family? What is the topic of this story? It's a very interesting situation. 
but depending on what you want to say, so in some ways you're flipping it around and depending on what's the in the why, whatever the interesting piece is, that's mm-hmm. what determines what the X is in this case. What did you come up with? Well, I didn't. It's not my job. <laughs> you know, I was like, <laughs> this is not my story to write, you know, it's their story to write. But we talked about different possibilities and sort of laid them out. And like the XY story formula allowed them to identify where those things were. Now, to reach back a little with that, I think you mentioned that This American Life will kill 40% of any stories they work on. I think that's a number they gave me at one point. Yeah. So in all these sessions, are they, they're still doing a little bit of throwing things against the wall and seeing what sticks? Yeah. I mean, when it comes down to it, they won't, I mean, it's nonfiction. It depends on what tape they can get and what they have access to. So if the story doesn't pan out, if it doesn't reach their level, they won't run it. Is, is some of that too timing, like maybe a story's in gestation, but they just don't quite have the ending yet. It could be, okay, somebody's going to trial. Did they get sentenced? You know, things like that. I assume so. I don't, I don't know. That's not, I'm not in the process at that level, but at a basic level, any show that's going to be as good as that has to have a pipeline that's going to produce more material than they will actually use because it just won't hit their level. And can you tell me about the pipeline a little? I know that I've interviewed Margot Lightman, who was a story scout. Mm-hmm. Do they have a lot of different scouts who just kind of go out and find stories? Do you know anything about I, I, that? I don't know. It's not. Yeah, I don't know. Okay. Well, back to the story elements. A third one you brought up was the Soren from Soren Wheeler. Yeah. So the Soren, I don't, I don't use in the Matrix Workshop, but I used it as inspiration for the story Matrix which is one that I made up using some elements of the Soren. And so the Soren is Soren Wheeler. When I talked to him about the focus sentence and the XY story formula, he's like, yeah, kind of, but that's not really what makes stories juicy. It's not what makes them good, which is true. I mean, he's absolutely accurate. Like you can have a story that conforms 100% to these two frameworks and have nothing. So he went through this thing and he was joking. Basically, he's like, you know, the way we do it is this happened, then this happened, then this happened, and then you wouldn't effing believe it, but this happened. And the reason it matters to every person (laughs) on the face of the earth is this. You know, he was kidding. But he also wasn't kidding, because they have at Radiolab, Soren Wheeler's the head, I think still the chief editor at Radiolab, just have a really, really high standard also for stories. Like if it doesn't pass some threshold, it just isn't going to get on the air. So he was kind of serious in that sense. But I think what came out of that is when I was working on the podcast for Out on the Wire, it's a limited series about storytelling. And each episode has a challenge at the end. So it's sort of pedagogical. It's like, try this now. And we had a group, an online group where people would get to try this stuff in the group and then get feedback from each other and whatever. So one of the members of the group tried a focus sentence, I want to say, or something, and wasn't gelling. And then she just was like, I'm just going to use the Soren. And she used the Soren, which I hadn't intended. You know, I didn't talk about it in, in the episode. And she killed it. It was awesome. Suddenly, the story just came alive. You know, it was really great. And that book's actually published now, which is pretty cool. So anyway, that really opened my eyes to the need for a couple of things, which is which from the Soren, which are chronology, which Ira talks about a lot. So if you're going to actually plot out a story or plan out a story using a framework, you need to add chronology and escalation. 
And then the second thing is the framing. So you have in the XY, you have what's interesting to the audience. And the frame is why does it matter, you know, to the mm. to your intended audience, which is not necessarily every human being walking the face of the earth, but whoever you're trying to talk to at a larger, deeper level, why does it matter? You know, one is why are they going to listen? And then is like, why do they care, you know, at that deep level? So the way I ended up writing the story matrix includes bits of the focus sentence and the XY story formula and the Soren and kind of puts them all together. And that's really the sort of the, the that's the, I don't get to teach that often because it takes a long time to teach it, but it's really fun to teach that. It's And it's very, very challenging to do a, a full story matrix. I think it's really interesting how you mentioned that it's not necessarily for everyone. Is that in fact the case that maybe a little polarization is good, that there's a lot of audience the story is not for, but the audience it is for will be passionate for it? Oh, yeah. No, you're going to have a much better story if you're not trying to write a story for everybody. If you try to create anything for everybody, it's going to be watered down and lowest common denominator, and it's not going to be for anybody as a result. Okay, because I've been studying that a lot, that half of it is determining who it's not for. Yeah, I think it's a really good way to help you understand the edges of what you're trying to do. If you are having a trouble figuring out who it is for, start thinking about who it's not for. And things will get much clearer much more quickly. And I think it's neat, the different methods. They all seem to really complement one another. But I'm guessing that each one may resonate with different people in different ways. You mean the frameworks? Yes. Yes. I think that for, I mean, again, given that the the focus sentence is really designed for character-centered narratives. But that aside, <laughs> I think it's valuable to do all three on any given story and probably revise them multiple times because you're going to take a first whack at it. And it's kind of like a hypothesis about what you think your story is going to be about. And then at some point it'll take a turn and get more interesting and weirder and you're going to have to rethink it. And I think that's healthy. And speaking of hypothesis, you've brought up starting with the hypothesis when interviewing. Do you want to go into that? I'm guessing it's you're going in with intent or what you assume you're going to not well i mean i think anytime you're gonna go into an interview it's not so much a hypothesis of this is what i'm gonna get i guess what i learned from so what i learned about interviewing from ira glass and robert smith um, and zoe chase mostly although other people talked about it too is that when you're really to be a really great interviewer yes you prepare and yes you go in with an open mind but you also try to kind of walk through the role that this interview is going to play in your story and know what you're going to get from the interview, like plan what you're going to actually take away from the interview. And you're open to anything that comes from left field. But if you don't have that planning in place, that's the hypothesis piece. If you don't have this sort of hypothesis about like, this is how this character fits into my story. This is the role that they're going to play. And therefore, I need to ask these kinds of questions in order to make sure I have the tape I need. You're going to be screwed because you're not going to have the tape you need. Like if you don't actually do that prep in that way. So I think inexperienced interviewers tend to just have a list of questions that are just kind of all over the map, or they need to take hours and hours of interviews and sift through them all or whatever. Somebody who's a really good interviewer can spend a lot less time and end up 
right in the heart of what's relevant to the story they're trying to tell without being dishonest at all about what the person said. Okay. I think in one of your interviews on the podcast, it was brought up that you're seeking certain parts of the overall story. Like these are going to be openers. These are going to be closers. So ask questions that may be really, really simple, but they establish the story. Is that Mm -hmm. a fair analogy? That kind of thing. Yeah, that's the kind of thing. Or like this person played, you know, I know from the research I've done, this person was like at this place at this time. And so therefore I need to get from them the connective tissue that's going to go from this bit to this bit, connect them together. I need them to tell me about how they showed up there, how they left, like what, you know, so very specific kinds of things instead of do you know this person and how was you tell me about your life and what do you, you know, you don't, it's like you you need to be much more pointed than that. And I think that comes, you know, all the people I had mentioned who were talking about this also have extensive history as news reporters who have to go out and bring in stories like one after the other. They have to get very efficient. It's really only, it's only possible to have like three hours of tape you need to comb through for two minutes for the first year or two of your career when you're willing to just like stay up all night and do this and learn your learn your trade. But at some point, I think their point is you have to get better at this. And not only is it more efficient, it's also just you get better tape. Like if you know the right questions to ask, and you're willing to ask them, you're gonna get better tape. And that's probably experience. I mean, the more more you do it, the more you sense it. It's definitely experience. But it's also specifically understanding this process of creating a hypothesis about who this person is in the story. And then sort of figuring out what are the questions you would ask them if they actually are this person in the story, and then ask those questions. That also transitions into modeling the behavior, mm-hmm. which you were talking about in there, which I'm guessing is part of the technique in the questions to, you want them to not only answer the question you need, but you need to answer it in a certain way. Yeah. I mean, you're asking questions that really are for master interviewers, not for me. Like I, I reported this stuff <laughs> I am not the master of all this stuff at all. I'm the one who gets home with 80 hours of tape and has to sort through it all. Not not the person who can go in with surgical precision and a- ask the right questions. But yes, I think in general, I think the the one thing I can say about your question is that when you're interviewing or being interviewed for that matter, the most important thing is to understand that you're having a conversation. That it isn't a questionnaire. It's a conversation. True. And the idea of modeling is like, if you want the person to be open and emotional, you should be open and emotional. If you want the person to present in a kind of more official capacity, then you question them that way. You need to be fully present and connecting to them as a human being in the way that you want them to connect to you. Because we do this as, you know, apes. We mirror each other. (laughs) That's true. Well, and I'm thinking especially... With a lot of the storytellers you're interviewing, things like that, there's different styles. You mentioned they're nonfiction and journalists. So they're in a lot of ways, I'm trying to word things well, writing to a story. Like when you read a newspaper article, there's a narrative flow and mm-hmm. some quotations sprinkled within. You don't hear the reporter's question. You're only reading what the answers are. It seems like a lot of this American life, et cetera, is done in that manner. Is that a fair observation? I don't know. 
I mean, I would have to do a survey of what they're doing these days and pay attention to percentage of narration versus tape. I mean, you definitely get the personality of the reporters often in the stories, unless they've moved away from that very specifically. You also get a lot of what they call reflection, which is sort of like, they try to get the subject to reflect, but sometimes it's the reporter saying, this is what I learned, or this is what we know now, and here's how I felt, and that kind of stuff, which is what set them apart when they started. It was that sort of very human and emotional kind of reporting was just very unlike what most of what you would hear anywhere in media. And they've just created an entirely new, I mean, Ira will be very careful to acknowledge his predecessors, because there are people who were doing this beforehand who he learned from, you know, they were doing it in the context of NPR news and stuff. But he's the one who consolidated it into like, a sound and an approach that then, you know, shattered into a million pieces, you know, and became all the different shows that we now know with all these different idiosyncratic voices and points of view. Yeah, it's fascinating timing, because he did it in the radio realm, which is much narrower, and then podcasts came along, and everything went crazy. Yeah, it's interesting, actually, the very last panel of, I think it's the last panel of Radio and Illustrated Guide, He's basically predicting podcasting. He says, this is just the way we do this in our voice and our taste. And anybody else use the exact same tools and the exact same procedure will come up with something completely different. And they did. (laughs) I was thinking that you had mentioned in an interview that Radio the Illustrated Guide wasn't, you know, like a mega bestseller, but you saw it everywhere. And for some reason, it popped in my head. I don't know if you've ever heard the quote about the Velvet Underground. I don't know. The quote was that they didn't sell a lot of albums, but everyone they did started a band. And I kind of feel like that's how influential your books are. I mean, I think Radio and Illustrated Guide did have an enormous impact. It, I definitely did not see it everywhere. It wasn't something that came up, but it would come up in strange places. Like I'd be at a comics festival and a person who was at the festival would tell me his brother became a radio producer because of me or something. Do you know what I mean? Like it would be this right. strange, like, wow, what? Huh? Had legs. And it was for a really long time, the only book out there that actually went through. Cause the difference between radio and illustrated guide and out on the wires, radio and illustrated guide walks through the technical process that this American life used and still uses really with, you know, the tech has changed, but the process hasn't changed to create their work. And there was no other place to learn about this. And so Radio and Illustrated Guide was adopted by basically anybody who was trying to teach or learn how to make something like This American Life, which at the time was all radio, there was no podcasting. And so when I went back to do Out on the Wire, it was easy to get people to say yes to talk to me because they all knew me. And that was pretty (laughs) cool. I don't think it was ever well known outside of audio circles, but inside American narrative audio, it's very well known and I think really did have a big impact. And I think that's the same with Out on the Wire now. I mean, I I think that those two books are more influential in that field than something like drawing words and writing pictures is in, in comics. I don't know, probably. You know, there just isn't that much there helping people understand these things. And, you know, I don't know how many podcasting classes use Out on the Wire but a lot of them. Well, it's very, very accessible. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, any any student who's assigned a comic book as their textbook is like, yes, 
awesome. <laughs> I have one question. There's a complete segue, and I apologize, but comic book or graphic novel? Some people get upset, and they're like, no, it's graphic novels. Well, anybody who's a little more old school will be more likely to be the opposite. You know, no, it's comic books. Graphic novel is, according to me anyway, is a format. It just means a book with one single comics fiction story with a spine that can sit on a bookshelf. That's all it means. A comic book is something floppy magazine. Mm -hmm. Comics is the medium. So the content of anything is comics, any of these things. But, you know, you have books like Out on the Wire. I just like to call it a comic. But people are like, oh, it's a graphic novel. But I'm like, it's nonfiction. Well, it's graphic nonfiction. I'm <laughs> okay. like, well, that sounds dumb. <laughs> so, you know, and the word graphic now I think has been sort of ratcheted down from what it used to be. But graphic used to mean sexy or full of violence or something. And it doesn't mean that anymore, really. Uh, people don't interpret it that way as much as they used to. But that's always been a bit of a graphic memoir. What does that mean? I didn't think it, about that. Yeah, it's tricky. Just If you could just call it comics, it would be easier. But if you want to use a sort of more all-encompassing term that's more neutral, you can call it graphic narrative. Hmm. Okay. Well, to close out, I'd love to talk about what you're doing now, the Creative Focus Workshop. And is that a pivot or just a continuation? Oh, it's definitely a pivot. I mean, I wasn't teaching online classes before or doing coaching, which is what I'm doing now. So the Creative Focus Workshop really stems out of Out on the Wire, in fact. When I was winding down the podcast, I was sort of trying to figure out what the next thing was going to be, what I was going to be doing. And I surveyed the people in the group, the Out on the Wire group that I talked about where they were workshopping materials. And I said, well, so if I were to do something else, what would you guys need from me? And asked them and asked my email list. And I was really looking for answers like, well, we should do something about character development, or let's do a deep dive into, you know, interviewing or some of the questions you've asked today, really. But the strongest sort of message I got back was, I can't get my work done. I'm totally underwater. I'm procrastinating all the time. All of this stuff where there was just a lot of, a lot of people feeling very out of control of their work process and their creative life. And I've done a lot of big projects and I I do have a pretty good sense of project management and how to get stuff done and all these other kinds of things. And so I thought, oh, I can help with that. And I don't know that I really knew what I was starting because it's been amazing. It's been really great. The people I work with are super cool. But there's a lot of stuff that, you know, my initial in impulse was like, I'll just do a project management course, which I did, but it almost instantly turned to you know, issues of the inner critic and like all this other stuff, you know, very, mm. very internal personal stuff about how does it feel to be a creative person and how do you not get overwhelmed by everything and all that kind of stuff. And so really in, in concert with many co cohorts of students now, hundreds of students, I've developed this program, sort of a group coaching program with a robust community that goes with it. What it's about is creative productivity. Like it's kind of about getting your work done. But the problem with that is that the notion of productivity is is all about just cramming more stuff in. <laughs> and I'm not in favor mm. of that. So I struggle to figure out how to talk about it. But basically, it's about creating a more sustainable and resilient creative life. How do you build sustainability and resilience into what you're doing? Do more of it, do it better, be happier with it get it out in the world, all that stuff. So that's what the Creative Focus Workshop is about. 
So like a lot of systems and mindset work and things like that? Definitely there's systems. There's also a lot of strategic work, really, like prioritization work where you're thinking through what is really important to me and how do I make sure that happens? So getting very, very clear on what you want to happen and then looking for ways to implement that in the real world. Well, perfect. Now people can find out more about that at jessicaable.com. Yes, definitely. Yep. Yeah. If you're interested in the story frameworks, I actually have a worksheet you can download and a series of articles on my blog that go through the process of getting a fully built out framework for a story. So it doesn't go beyond that, but it goes through finding an idea, the focus sentence, XY story formula, chronology and suspense, and then framing in the story matrix. And that's a series of five articles. And if you wanted to just jump in and find that, you could go to jessicaable.com slash XY hyphen story hyphen formula. Awesome. I definitely, and I will put a direct link to that as well. Yeah. XY dash story dash formula. Yeah, exactly. And then, so that's the XY article. And there's a little table of contents that can point you to the other four articles. And there's also a button where you can sign up and get the cheat sheet sent to you. Oh, that's excellent. I will definitely post that. And hey, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, no problem. This was really fun. So there you go. Wasn't she fantastic? I am so thrilled to talk about how to improve storytelling any opportunity I have. Now, don't forget, there's a live stream. Be sure to go to YouTube. Check out Eric Hunley. And before you go, if you're looking for a couple shows you might want to try out, I'd like to recommend a couple. First, Grumpy Old Geeks, which had previous guest Jason DeFilippo and his co-host Brian Schulmeister. This is a fun show about tech and everything that can go wrong with it. They have a great time and are a lot of fun. And I also want to recommend a show from someone who I deeply appreciate and consider almost a mentor. Christopher Lockhead, Follow Your Different. It's a fabulous conversation show, similar to what we are doing here. He's even more conversational, and he is a riot. Be sure to check these out. They're available everywhere you can find podcasts.